You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. My guest today, uh, her name is Mackenzie. I met her at a coffee roastery, um, and we got to talking about coffee and all the parameters and elements that go into it. And it was like this hour and a half long conversation. It was amazing. And I just couldn't believe there was so much to the process. So I asked her if she'd be willing to come back on and, and talk about it, because it's rare to find anyone that knows much about coffee really at a deep level. And, um, you know, so that's why she's here. So Mackenzie, thanks for coming. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, tell me, what, what got you interested in coffee in the first place? How did you end up working at a, a coffee roast place? Uh, so originally, I wasn't actually that into coffee. I was really into tea. And I've always been interested in the science aspect of being able to taste different flavors um, and just being able to smell different aromas in general. And so that kind of introduced me into this whole world of sensory. Uh, when I started out needing a job right out of high school, uh, I started looking into the coffee industry because that's obviously the biggest market for aroma and flavor profiling, basically in the US. Uh, I just happened upon a roasting job and I started out there. So four years later. <laughs> oh, so you've been, okay, you've been roasting for four years? Yeah, I've been doing it for four years. Yeah, I remember one big thing you told me is that um, after you grind coffee, you shouldn't brew it right away and drink it because it won't taste right. Can you talk about why? And after you roast it, you shouldn't necessarily grind it and brew it immediately after. You would like to, you should wait anywhere from three to eight days, depending on the kind of coffee you have, the way it's roasted, the region it's from. Um, the reason being is because there's this interesting thing called off-gassing that happens. Uh, now, of course, it's not bad for you if you drink it right away, but it's just not going to taste the same. Coffee gets uh, a lot of pockets in it during the roasting process. We call them pores. And basically what happens is within those pores, uh, nitrous oxide, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and all these different gases or volatile organic compounds get trapped on the inside of the bean. As they slowly release over a period of a couple of days, they start to bring to surface the different aroma and flavors that make up the coffee itself. So you can't even really smell uh, the aroma of coffee on a freshly roasted bean. You have to break it open and release those gases in order to smell it. So um, when you roast coffee, you just, is it like in a popcorn popper, essentially? It's just 
hot air is blowing over the beans and they're flying around and, and roasting or how does the roasting process? So there's, there's many different ways to roast coffee. Uh, traditionally, coffee's always been roasted in a pan over a fire. Um, so there's always gonna be some sort of heat source. And there's three different kinds of major heat sources, right? There's, there's a, a direct contact, there's um, a radiating heat, right? And then there's a convection sort of um, aspect to it, which is the air. So the way I've always roasted is in a drum style roaster with a gas flame, and we're pulling the air out of the beans. So you're getting that direct transfer of conduction heat. You're getting a little bit of that radiation from the cast iron. And then you're also getting that conduction as it's moving through the air as the drum is spinning. Um, but you can totally roast in a popcorn popper as well. In fact, when I first started roasting coffee, I tried doing that at home. Um, it's very fun. <laughs> so, That's cool. Yeah. So what do the different roasting styles do to the coffee? How do they make it taste different? Uh, so it, uh, that's kind of a hard question because there's so many different aspects of roasting that can change the flavor. But there's three main things that, are, that everybody talks about. Uh, there's a light, a medium, and a dark roast. Um, depending on the company you work for, the coffee shop you're at, the person you're talking to, they're all going to have a different perception of what is light, what is medium, and what is dark. Uh, but basically, a light roast is going to be something roasted to a lower temperature. It's not, it might not be roasted for very long, anywhere from 7 to 15 minutes. Uh, I've heard a 15-minute light roast, but that's not super common. Um, but it's roasted to a lower temperature. It maintains a lot of the citric acid, so it's going to be a lot more sour or citrusy or acidic in the cup. Um, it also maintains a majority of the caffeine within the bean itself compared to like a medium or a dark roast. It's going to be roasted to higher temperatures, and they're going to um, differentiate in flavor based on how long they're roasted for, or how to what temperature. I mean. So, so the longer you roast the coffee, uh, the darker it gets, or it tends to get. Um, so roasting kind of takes place. So in general, yes, but in roasting kind of takes place over a period of time and a rising of temperature. So think of the rate of a rise for like slope. You know, you have the you have the rise of a run sort of uh, equation. That's kind of how we roast coffee. So you can roast coffee really quickly, but you have to get it to a certain temperature for it to be a dark roast. So coffee in general will become a darker roast, which means that it's going past second crack um, or right up to second crack at about 420 degrees Fahrenheit. So it has to get to that temperature or just about that temperature to be considered like a really dark roast. What is the, you said a crack? What, what does that mean? So in, within the roasting process, there's a thing called first crack and second crack. Um, first crack is kind of a stage of roasting. It's where a lot of newer roasters um, and the industry is actually moving this direction where we do uh, what we call a, a crack and drop or a pop and drop. I've also heard it called uh, where you roast right up to the first crack and then you drop the coffee out because it's going to maintain a lot of the different um, really delicate aroma and flavor profiles of the coffee without over roasting it, without over caramelizing these sugars. But basically what's happening during that, that first crack process is the coffee's increasing in temperature. It's going through the Maillard reaction and it's browning. It's doing a non-enzymatic browning. And as we're roasting, as it's going through this reaction, the water vapor on the inside of the bean is becoming really excited. It's getting to its temperature where it wants to burst. So it literally pops open the bean. The bean doubles in size. This thing called chaff that's on the inside, on, kind of on the outside of the bean, 
starts to come out at this time. And this is when you're just starting to get into an exothermic reaction in the coffee. At this point, the longer you roast it, the more you're gonna start caramelizing the sugars. So a light roast is gonna get right up to first crack and maybe a little bit after first crack and then it's going to be discharged from the uh, roaster. Mm. Yeah. And then there's a second crack? Does the bean yeah. crack open even more? Later. So in second crack, it's it's kind of interesting. So second crack is it's um, caramelizing the sugars, right? So roasting after the first crack is it's all caramelizing sugars. But when you're breaking down those molecules, your those carbohydrates, um, you're creating byproducts. So you're creating carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, nitrous oxides, and water. Again, so it gets up to another temperature to where these pore pockets on the inside of the bean they burst open. Second crack will literally, is, it's, it's so violent, it literally takes a pocket of the bean off the back of the bean, and it will shoot it off. So if you get a really dark roast, and you look at your beans, and it has this little tiny circle that's missing uh, from the really beautiful outside brown shell, that's roasted the second crack. So I guess people play with, um, you know, the temperature ramp, the temperature it gets to, how long it sits at that temperature, the ramp down. What are, yes. what are some of the factors the major levers and roasting that they could change? Uh, that, that's determined on where the coffee is from. So different regions, the way it's processed, whether it's decaffeinated or not, is all going to change. And then also how you want it to taste. Because all roasting is, is taking this product that we can't brew into coffee and brewing it into coffee. But you have to make it taste good in order for it to sell, right? So, um, yeah, it's all dependent on what you're trying to get out of it. Well, what, are, what do you see roasters doing? Are they trying to, I mean, like, are there trends where, you know, I've seen some coffees are fruity, which ugh, I don't like, but some are more like caramel and cocoa. And I guess, are there, like, major flavor profiles that people know how to aim for? Um, yes and no. So fruity coffee or stuff that's a little bit more florally. That's all going to be naturally occurring in the bean, along with the chocolate notes, the, the nutty notes that naturally come with it. That's all naturally occurring. You can't, really, you can't really just add that back in. You can't just roast it a certain way to make it taste like that. But you can roast it in a way that highlights that component. So if you want something that's really light, citrusy, florally, very, very uh, tea-like in consistency, you're going to want to roast it really light and aggressively because it's going to not, it's, it's not going to allow the citric acid to burn off as much. If you have a very aggressive first part of the roast, uh, which I'll, I'll explain that. The aggressiveness literally means you are um, adding a lot of heat at the beginning. So you're trying as hard as possible to get this coffee as, to the temperature that you want it to be at. Um, and it's a very quick roast. That's going to preserve a lot of the citric acid that's naturally occurring in the bean. That's going to preserve a lot of those delicate aromas and flavor uh, compounds that make up the flavor profile and aroma of floral notes and citrus notes and all these beautiful sort of tea-like consistencies, right? If you roast them for a longer, less aggressive time, you're going to burn that out. So if you want a more medium, mild, chocolatey, nutty sort of coffee, you might need to adjust the way you're adding heat in the beginning or even in the middle of the roast to either give more or give a little bit less to kind of coast it towards the way you want to be, if that makes sense. I, I feel like I didn't yeah. explain that very well, but. <laughs> well, I mean, do some people like ramp up the temperature very quickly, but don't go to as high a temperature as other people? Do people like pulse the temperature 
up and yeah. down? Does that do anything? Like, like what have people found in the ways to monkey with the roasting so that it, it can be very different outcome? So of course this depends on the roaster that you're roasting with. Um, whenever I was roasting on many different roasters, I've roasted on Probot, Scolari, uh, San Franciscan, Diedrix, right? All these different kinds. They are going to all react differently um, to how you're putting in the coffee. Uh, in a light roast, you know, I've, I've taken a little bit of uh, information from Mill City Roasters and I've tried completely cutting out the burner after I've gotten my drum hot enough when I want something really light. Right after I drop the coffee in, I cut off the burner for a little bit, letting the coffee come back down the temperature, maybe only for about 30 seconds to a minute. Then I ramp that burner all the way back up. It's going to give me a very aggressive coffee turnaround, but it's going to allow me to come down to a temperature to where the coffee's equalizing with the drum. So I don't scorch the outside of the bean. So that's another thing you have to think about. Scorching the outside of the bean and not roasting the inside of the bean is a surefire way to give you an extremely sour cup, a very grassy cup, because it's going to look beautiful. It's going to look very evenly roasted, but the minute you grind it, it's going to be too light on the inside. So there's, you know, there's a lot to, to play around with, I guess. <laughs> I always tell the story that horrifies coffee people that, you know, my friend in college was really cheap and he would make coffee and then he would leave the grinds in there and he would put like a fresh layer on top the next day. And he would brew it again. And I drank it. It was like horrifically sour, but it, it was crazily caffeinated. So yeah. It woke us up. It did the job. And it was like, blah, you know. Yeah. Well, that does not horrify me, to be honest. I'm definitely not a coffee snob. Uh, when I made coffee this morning, I just poured extra water over the grinds that I had left under the day prior. So oh, I, yeah. When, you know, when you only get six hours of sleep a night, that's kind of kind of what you do I guess I don't know I'm not a, I'm not somebody who's going to perfectly extract the coffee I can roast it really really well I can make you the roast that you want but I'm not about to sit there and tell you that I know how to brew everything because that's not my specialty <laughs> so also oh, so in the industry I guess that roasting is its own specialty and then brewing is its own separate brewing specialty is a whole nother thing I know how to, you know, I just learned how to make a Chemex two weeks ago and I've been roasting for four years, but I've never, I've never seen the need because I, I know how to make a perfect French press. That's what I drink. If I'm going to drink, um, if I'm going to make a really good cup of coffee, I'm going to make a French press and that's just what I've always done. Uh, brewing is such an art because you have to know the extraction you have to know the water solubility if you want, really want to get into it. Water solubility is so important to extracting the proper aroma and flavor profiles out of the cup. You know, not using distilled water, but using purified water that's soft enough to extract those delicate aromas. Because a, a lot of the compounds that make up these aroma and flavors, they start to actually decompose after three to five minutes of you grinding the coffee. And a lot of them also end up evaporating at room temperature. So it's like trying to seal in as much as you can in the cup. It's very wow. it's fascinating process. I, I respect so heavily people that are into it because I just cannot. I can't, in the morning at eight o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning, I can't get into it. <laughs> as a general rule, if you're going to have coffee at home, it would be better not to grind it and just grind it and then drink it right away. Yes. So... One of the things I tell a lot of people that ask me, how do you make your coffee at home? Um, the one thing I do all the time is I won't start the grinder until my water is boiling. 
Now I have a burr grinder. I have, I do have an expensive setup, even though I don't measure anything. I have a pretty expensive setup. Uh, I have a little burr grinder and I pour the coffee in there um, and I set my water boiling. I get my water boiled and then I let it set for a second because boiling water is going to scorch the coffee beans. It's going to, it's, it's actually going to create more of a bitter cup. So you don't want the water boiling when you pour it over. You want it to be about 198 degrees, maybe 197. Um, but I'll set the burr grinder going. Then I'll pour the, the coffee grinds into the vessel I'm making coffee out of and pour the settled boiled water over it, right? Um, it's going to allow me to seal in that sweetness. So whenever you grind coffee, it smells super sweet. That particular aroma starts to degrade after three minutes. So yeah, I, I always make sure to seal that in. <laughs> so you want to, okay, you want to grind it and then I mean, you want to melt your lip off, but you want to drink it as soon as you can too, or does the stuff stay trapped if you uh, brew it right? It depends on, it, if you brew it right, it'll be fine. Depending on the method you're brewing it as well, it's going to taste completely different. And there's a lot of aspects to health for this as well. Um, for example, there's a lot of news, uh, there's a lot of stories in the news constantly going back and forth whether coffee is going to give you high cholesterol or not. If you brew your coffee with a paper filter, that eliminates the risk, but it also removes a lot of the oils that carry over some of the uh, more delicate compounds. It gives you an extremely clean cup, and some people really like that. I personally don't. Uh, I don't appreciate the uh, paper filter brewing methods, so like Chemexes and stuff. I'm not a big fan of them because um, I like the oily, gritty cups. But yeah. How do you? Uh, by the way, how is coffee decaffeinated? You mentioned that just for a second earlier. Right. Okay. So hang on. I've got to look up the, I, I have to look up how to say the word because um, coffee decaffeination is very interesting. There is three different main methods of doing it. So there's the MC process or the methylene chloride process, which is a solvent used uh, for direct decaffeination method. Basically what happens, you put the beans into this sort of um, hot water and uh, methylene chloride solution. It extracts or dissolves the caffeine. You rewash the beans, you dry them, and then we roast them. And now methylene chloride, it evaporates at a very, very low temperature. So it evaporates at around 100 to 107 degrees Fahrenheit. We're roasting anywhere up to 400, 420 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's completely eliminated in the cup at the end, right? But that's the main process. If you go almost anywhere in the world, that's most likely what you're going to get. Um, the second most popular method is the Swiss water processing, which is agitated water. Uh, you soak it in super cold agitated water, and then it, is, oh, it sort of dissolves the caffeine as well. You re-dry uh, the coffee, and then you send it out to the roasters. Problem with that one is for every 100 grams of decaf coffee you want to make, you have to throw away 100 grams of regular decaffeinated coffee already because they have to use they have to use 100 grams of coffee put it into this water it extracts everything all the flavor compounds all the caffeine they take that coffee out throw it away put another 100 grams of coffee in it there's only so much you can extract out of coffee uh, out of coffee when it's already been extracted the water is already at its high level of solubility at that point and so um, it will only extract the caffeine from those beans but you're getting a lot of waste out of it. So it's not necessarily the best method 
Uh, third method that I've been roasting a lot recently um, and I'm seeing an increase of, which is great, it's just really expensive, is the indirect processing method of carbon dioxide, where they basically put this, uh, all these beans into a chamber. They fill the chamber with a little bit of hot water, steam, and carbon dioxide. It dissolves the caffeine. You then wash the beans, dry them, and then the roasters receive them. That method is my favorite. It's the easiest to roast because uh, decaf coffee is, has its own personality. And it also is the easiest to um, sort of taste the coffee. So I don't know if you've ever had decaf, but typically it doesn't really taste that good. Uh, every Actually, decaf- I, was, I, I was afraid of it, but I recently started having it like a year or two ago and it seems to be really good. I can't even tell the difference. I guess yeah. the new, wherever I go, the new methods are working. Yeah, really we're getting really better at roasting and figuring out how to decaffeinate coffee. Because coffee, uh, decaf coffee, there's so much potential to it. There's so much potential. Um, it's just the coffee, like, up until recently, it was the coffee everybody's grandmother drank, you know? Nobody cared about it. But I love it. <laughs> I, love, I love decaf now. So. Well, you could drink it with impunity, just about. I, I, I've read that it's approximately 90% less caffeine, although it varies. So it varies, you can't yeah. Drink it, you can't drink like 50 cups a day, but it's a lot safer to drink than drinking caffeinated, especially later in the evening. That's why I drink it. Right. So, all right, let's put this into comparison. A double shot of a double shot espresso of Arabica coffee is going to give you about 80 milligrams of caffeine, right? A double shot espresso of decaf Arabica coffee is going to give you 8 to 11 milligrams. So you can actually have quite a bit of decaf without it actually getting you up to the same point as one double shot of Arabica. So, Okay. That yeah, makes yeah. sense. And what, what does it do to the roasting? You said it had its own personality. Like, what, yeah. How does that change the roasting process? Um, so the beans, the beans itself look different. The beans are harder. They look more rock-like uh, in both the size of them as well as the color so unroasted coffee is sort of a light green bluish green yellow green color range decaffeinated coffee is brown or gray or like a stone gray it's a very weird color when you roast it because the water percentage is different and because there's the cellulose is broken down in the uh, decaffeination process it will either do two things absorb the heat way better or it absorbs heat like crap and it won't work for you very well. So you have to play around with the way you're roasting it, depending on where it's from to um, properly be able to actually roast a good cup of decaf. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, obviously coffee is from many places in the world. How does that contribute to differences in it? You know, something's from Colombia versus you know Ethiopia. Like what are the differences you've seen when you come to roast it? Um, most of it has to do with the processing methods. So if you have a, the most common processing method worldwide is washed processing, which is going to give you a really clean citrus, basically a, a citrusy cup. Um, it's not a hundred percent, but in general, um, very easy to roast, very nice, beautiful beans are very clean. Then there's something called a semi-washed or a, a half washed processing method, which is, um, Basically, they remove the skin of the cherry. They dry the mucilage onto the beans. Then they uh, wash the, then they take the mucilage off by scrubbing and they re-dry the beans again. That's going to give you a weird 
kind of roasting profile, but the end result is going to be very earthy, very sort of um, think of like a Sumatran bean or something from East Timor or something from Indonesia in general. That's all going to be pretty much semi-washed or a natural um, half-wash processing. Uh, roasting that is pretty easy, but it still has its own personality in the way that it absorbs heat because the beans might still have a little bit of uh, like more sugars attached to it on the outside. Um, then there's natural processing or uh, sun-dried. That's going to give you those fruity cups that you said you didn't like. Um, that's my personal favorite. That is... <laughs> Yeah, it's my personal favorite. I love a super heavy fruity cup. But those coffees, they change. Their water percentage in the actual dried bean can vary from bean to bean because of the nature of how it's processed. So basically, you take these cherries, these beautiful red or yellow or pink green coffee cherries. You lay them out on beds, raised beds, or on concrete floors, grounds, whatever they have at the station. And they dry the cherries onto the beans like raisins. Then they remove the raisin part of the cherry and dry it again and then remove the parchment. And that gives this really beautiful bean that's very fragrant. It's extremely fragrant. If you're not careful, it's going to turn into a fermented whiny sort of coffee. But it's, it's so beautiful and it's so delicate. And I love roasting it, but I hate roasting it at the same time because it changes every single time. There is, I can't have a consistent cycle. There's no such thing with sun-dried coffee. <laughs> so how do you know when you're about to roast something? Do you do like a, you have like a tiny little roaster and you like test roast a little bit of it? Or how do you know what to do? So for me personally, um, if I'm buying it and I'm roasting it at home, I'm going to test roast a quarter of a pound, you know, of coffee. Um, with my job, I am, I personally am not the one that is responsible for making the different kinds of coffee that we're roasting or ordering them. I am responsible for ensuring that I can roast the coffee um, that I'm given and uh, be able to roast it to a, uh, how they want me to roast it to a guideline. Um, but in the industry, if you are wanting to uh, try to figure out how you want to roast it, yeah, you're going to roast it on a sample roaster anywhere from one kilogram to two kilograms typically. And you roast it many different ways. Then you do what's called a cupping. So you'll grind the coffee, you put it into these little cups, pour hot water over it, let the grind settle. You scoop off the top crust part of it and then you cup it. You literally take a spoonful and you sip and spit. It's kind of like wine in a way. It gives you a very concentrated taste of how the coffee will taste in a, in a brewed cup. Um, and you'll decide which one you want off of that. Uh, I'm not directly involved in that process. I've done it a couple of times, but I'm not involved in that process as heavily as I am just roasting. I guess you'd have to taste coffee. I know you probably, be, I don't know if those people get sick of it, but I guess they get very sophisticated palates doing that every day. Yeah. Um, some of the larger companies that I know, like Nestle in general, uh, they, the, their, uh, coffee, green coffee quality teams, basically, they are going to be tasting 400, 600, 800 cups of coffee a day. Wow. Yeah. Because they're just importing so much coffee. Yeah. I once saw this show, this science show, where the guy was like a taster for an ice cream company, and he had a golden spoon and said they would cut open the ice cream and he would taste it with the spoon and then spit it out. Yeah. Otherwise, he'd probably be 800 pounds. But yes. I guess the spoon was, <laughs> was made so that 
you know, there was no residual taste on it or something. Interesting. I've never heard of that, but I also don't work in the ice cream industry. I don't have to deal with like fat deposits on spoons either. So that's great. (laughs) So, um, so with the roasting, what, I don't know, is there anything new coming down the pike, like new ways to do it or really unusual ways to do it that you're seeing coming? Uh, recently with, and I say recently within the past five years, um, that I've, or four years, I guess, there's been an upturn of barrel aged coffees, which is so fascinating because green coffee, so unroasted raw coffee is so absorbent of aromas and people have started putting them into barrels. They started putting them into whiskey barrels, gin barrels, rum barrels, wine barrels, uh, tequila barrels, you know, all these different barrels and aging them and then roasting them. I have a tequila barrel aged coffee right now that I've been drinking cold brew and it's amazing. It's a limited batch. It's something that you have to be really careful with because you can really, really, you can actually explode your roaster, <laughs> but it's such a fascinating aspect of what you can do with coffee. Because yeah, really we cool. haven't really we haven't really explored that. I mean, people make coffee stouts, but coffee that doesn't have any alcohol in it but tastes like alcohol it's it's my favorite thing right now. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, when, uh, coffee is fermented, right? At some point, or like it can be. When, when does happen? Yeah, when does this happen? So this happens once you receive the green coffee. So a roaster would receive the green coffee. Then they would throw it into these barrels that they got from either a local dispense, uh, local uh, distillery or a local or even a big name um, distillery that makes whiskey or gin or whatever. You know, they just buy the barrels from them. Then they throw the green coffee into these barrels that don't necessarily have any liquid in them, but are just the, you know, when you open up a whiskey barrel, it doesn't have any whiskey in it, but it smells like whiskey. That's what they throw them into. You're just kind of shaking them every three to six months. Um, or every month, depending on how long you want to age it for. I've heard people aging it for three months in tequila barrels to nine months in wine barrels to four months in gin barrels. It just really depends. And then um, then you take it out and you roast it, which that's the dangerous part because you can explode your roaster because there still might be some vapors left on the beans. And um, then you're ended up with this cup that has this cup of coffee that has a, a, a flavor and aroma of what you put it into, but still has the natural components of coffee itself. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. One of the last things I've heard, you know, I've heard of like single origin coffee, but does that mean that a lot of places will just, I don't know, put together a whole bunch of beans and then just have the roast to roast a composite? I mean, is that what you're given ever or you always get a single origin coffee to roast? So I'm given both. Um, I have roasted beans that were from multiple different farms put together into um, what they would call like a, a mill or a crop share or a co-sharing, uh, like a co-farm basically. And then we just get this mix of beans from the same region, many different farms. I wouldn't necessarily call that single origin, though some people do. Single origin in general, though, is it comes from one country or one farm in that country. And it's better if you, it says the farm name on the bag, um, because then you can kind of look up the farm on Google and you can see like, oh, this is where it's from. This is the coffee that I'm drinking and I could see where it's at on Google Maps or maybe they even have a, um, some information about it on a coffee website 
you know, somewhere from a couple years ago where somebody had went down and met the farmers. It's, it's very interesting. It's, it's very humbling in a way to be able to see that farm name on a bag of coffee yeah. that you're drinking, especially here in the U.S. So. Is it easier or harder to roast the, uh, the mixed coffees? Um, it can be easier. It can be easier. Um, it can also be really difficult. It depends, honestly. It can be very difficult because there are, there are so many different farms put together. But if they're all processed the same, it's pretty easy, I think. Okay. Yeah. Has anyone made, made like, I don't know, I guess, you know, like taking light and dark and medium roast and just mixed it all in? Yes, yes. Those are called post-roast blends. So only I only know a couple of roasters that do this, but they'll roast some component. They'll roast one component of the coffee and it'll be like a medium roast. And then they'll roast this other component of the coffee and they'll make that a really dark roast. And then they'll blend them together. So you get these beans that they, they don't look like they should be in the same bag. Then you grind it and you get both flavor profiles. So you get the mild body and the chocolatiness or nuttiness or whatever they were achieving from the medium roast. And then you get this really roasty sweetness from the darker roast that they have and it blends together very well. You'll see that more commonly or with limited editions for smaller, at yeah. least smaller batch roasters, I know. I don't know if this is an urban myth. I heard there's like a, a civet cat roast where the cat eats the bean, like poops yeah. them out and then people Puppy grind luac. them. Is that real? It is real. Yes, it is real. Um, you have to know, you have to know uh, the roaster that's roasted or you've got to, you've got to have some hookup because there's a lot of it on the market that's fake. Um, but basically what happens is that's like the rarest processing method in the world. Um, basically the civet cat, wild civet cat is going to be eating these coffee cherries um, and poops them out. In the process of the digestion, uh, it removes the cherry but it's left with the seeds. So you take the seeds, you wash them, you dry them, and then you roast them. And I've had Kopi Luwak coffee once or twice, oh. two times, I'll tell you. It's okay. It's a very interesting, it's very interesting because um, it doesn't really taste like coffee, to be honest. Really? Uh, yeah, a lot of, the two times I've had it, it's tasted very, like tomato soup. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to remember, there's so many different varieties of coffee. There's so many different species of the coffee tree. Like, we're known, we know Arabica and Robusta. But in the U.S., the majority of coffee is Arabica if you're going to a specialty coffee shop, if you're going uh, to, like, any, if, if it's, even, even like, non-specialty, even if you look at folders in the stores and you look at the back of the bag, sometimes they'll say 100% Arabica. That's what we're used to. So a lot of times... Some of this coffee that you're getting um, in the Kopi Luwak, it could be Robusta or it could be another species of coffee, and it just doesn't taste the same. It's not the same kind. It'd be funny if you had a single origin Kopi Luwak and they sent you a picture of the cat that ate it, you know. There you go. That would be, that would be down to – you know what? There was – I remember when I lived on the West Coast, there was uh, this coffee shop in San Francisco that I really wanted to go to. They were selling Kopi Luwak coffee by the cup for $42. And you didn't get to keep the cup. Like, that wasn't a thing. I could not believe. And people would go and buy it. It's a very lucrative business. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Huh. All right, well, well, very good. Um, for people that want to know more about coffee and roasting and grinding, and you know, what are some places they should go to start learning about it? So I'm going to start off with the chemistry portion for all the science nerds out there. Coffeechemistry.com. 
one of the best websites I remember ever learning from. They also do like different certificates for coffee science. Um, you can go on there, like you can buy that sort of stuff. It's very, very cool. They have a lot of different testing analysis and caffeine analysis. The second place, if you really like the health aspect of coffee, coffeeandhealth.org is a beautiful institute of science for information on coffee, basically. They have like latest research publications on here, all recent. So I'm looking at the website right now and they have one from this year about coffee indigestion and coffee intake. They have scientific peer-reviewed articles on there. Very good. Yeah. If you want to learn about um, roasting. So roasting is interesting. Uh, You have to get a roaster or get a pan or something. But if you just want to learn about it, Mill City Roasters has a great YouTube series about how to roast coffee. They break it down to make it pretty simple for you. They're not too, they're not snobbish about it. They're just really chill people. Um, They're great. And if you want to know more just about coffee in general, I would highly, highly recommend seeking out a local roaster and going in and just asking questions. Because even if the roaster or the guy who runs the roaster isn't there, you can come back and ask the baristas or even ask them when the roast is going to be in and he will be willing to, they, they will be willing to give you information on that, I'm sure. So. Okay, well, that's great. Well, Mackenzie, thanks for coming. It's been a really cool call and uh, I love coffee, as you can tell, and I know you love it too. And <laughs> yes. Yeah, I appreciate you speaking about it. Of course, yeah. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, but we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.